Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Happy New Year, friend, and welcome to the 104th episode of the Business for Good podcast. While the show comes out twice each month, year-round, we count each year as a new season. So you are now officially listening to the fifth season of this podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, there are four great seasons of evergreen episodes just waiting for your download. But if you want a cheat sheet to the most downloaded episodes ever in the show's history, we have now added a new section on the homepage at businessforgoodpodcast.com so you can go see what listeners have been most interested in. All right, now on to this episode. I recently gave a speech at the TEDx Boston conference, and while there, I saw Shelly Zhang give a speech also about her company, Molten Materials, and I was highly impressed by what she's doing. I knew I had to get her onto this show, and so I tried to talk with her after her talk, but she was swamped with admirers, so I couldn't even get close to her. Thankfully, she replied to my email a couple days after the conference, and we recorded this episode together. What is Shelly doing that is impressing so many people? Nearly none of the plastic that we use gets recycled. As we've discussed before on previous episodes of this show, the plastic that we throw into the recycling bin often ends up in landfills, since it's just not economical to recycle the plastic, especially now that China has banned imports of American plastic waste. So, what are we going to do with all these vast oceans of plastic that we seem to love to use? Shelly has an idea. As you'll hear in this episode, the death of Shelly's father led to the birth of her company, Molten Materials. Armed with her PhD in engineering, Shelly has pioneered a method of taking plastic waste and upcycling it into pavement sealers, asphalt rejuvenators, and more. In other words, she's betting that she can take our trash and turn it into her treasure, all while solving the pressing problem of what to do with all of our plastic waste. Already, Shelly has earned seed investment, hired a dozen team members, filed for various patents, and is now readying her first ever product, an upcycled plastic DIY pavement sealer that you can use on your own driveway or other cracked surfaces. Her story is an inspirational one, moving to the U.S. from China, earning her PhD, and now founding her own company. I think you'll be impressed too, so let me allow Shelly to tell you her story herself. Hello, Shelly, and welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Hi, Paul. Good to be here. It's awesome to be talking with you. You gave a really stellar talk at the TEDx Boston event. So you and I were both speakers there and I was also in your audience and I got to listen to you and I was so wowed. I thought, geez, I need to talk to this person on the podcast because I was so interested in what you're doing. But before we get, Shelly, to what you are doing now, what led you to this? Like, I see you have a PhD in engineering. What was it that led you to think, oh, I want to go get a PhD in engineering? Oh, it's a funny, that's a good question. I think growing up, you could call me a daddy's girl. I was just really close to my dad. And he was a self-taught this inventor slash engineer. And we will be always be building things together, making things. And sometimes this little, like, I started learning electrical circuits from him and learning how to weld very early on. And now one of my like meditation, self-soothing habits is welding. Sorry, sorry. No, <laughs> wow. Soldering. That's what I mean. So- <laughs> right. Soldering. So, okay, so I, cool. When I get stressed, I would just sit down and solder some circuits that I needed to do. So yeah, that speak in that winds back to, to high school. I guess we had, we first started learning circuits that just somehow was 
really good at it. And I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. I can be an electrical engineer myself. And like daddy, <laughs> somehow it just, and then the more I learned and got into it, and the more I feel, wow, this is a fascinating field, not just electrical engineering, just engineering and science in general. So that's how I got into engineering. And um, yeah, it's one thing to be interested in engineering and it's hard. It's funny because I've never soldered anything in my life, to be honest with you. And so for me, it's like <laughs> foreign to think, oh, that would be soothing and meditative to start soldering circuit boards. But I'm glad it was for <laughs> I, I, I'm glad that it was for you. But it's still it's a far jump to go from being interested in soldering to thinking this is going to be my PhD. So what happened? You were going to Caltech and then you thought mm -hmm. I really should be an electrical engineer by profession. It, I mean, it's the moment more, more came from the, I was doing an internship and then I was decide internship, I think with Fairchild in Maine, not to say anything bad about the company, just like a corporate company. And then I was thinking, should I, when I graduate the next year from college, should I stay here or should I get another job or go to grad school? So I was undecided at that point. And then just that, the nine, five every day. And I, I was in an engineering role and I thought, oh, if this is what like a beginning engineer would be doing and the coming, just going into industry, then I didn't like that. It's the mostly the non-five, the super, everything's defined. You have a certain role. And then that's what pushed me over over the boundary to pursue a grass graduate school, either a master or PhD degree. And I just somehow, I think I got, I was really lucky and I got into Caltech and that kind of opened up just a whole bunch of doors, just brought to this, um, my mindset to a different level. I'm really grateful for that. Before you were there, were you thinking, I may want to start my own company, or was that an idea that you had once you were in school and you're thinking, hey, I might actually be interested in being an entrepreneur here? Oh, yes. I think that I thought I would be. It's just, and actually, before I was graduating the, from college the last year, I was helping my dad with his business. Just growing up, I witnessed my dad as a failed entrepreneur, like not to, he practically died, tried hard and died trying. And he's my hero. How my family put through, put me through college was when I was really young and then everything was tough. I grew up in China, by the way. And so my dad quit his job and started this business to start to fix televisions for people. So I think he would charge $10 and he would work three days and to fix one television. And then somehow, because the whole economic situation in China, there was a lot of opportunities. So he, at one point, made some decent money with the, with his business doing like highway, I think for actually making control panels, control like machines to, that controls the ventilation and AC for the buildings. Anyway, and towards the end of my, my second, my first year of college, that business just really wasn't, was having a hard time. And then he was pivoting. So he started working on, started like making this little asphalt repair crack filler machine for this just by sheer chance for some importer in the U.S. So I was and then that wasn't making money. It was a really, really thin margin because as the manufacturer in China, you don't you don't keep the margins. It's the importers that do. And then I was helping him starting was like dad we don't need we don't need somebody else and they're i see how they're bullying you let's just i'm gonna sell it for you uh, let's just sell it here in the u.s 
ourselves. So that's how I started this asphalt store online, trying to sell dad's machine. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Asphalt- Wow, yeah. that's really something. So you started this store basically to try to get around these fees that were that he was paying. So Molten then is not really the first company that you started. Uh, no, it's not the first company. It's the first company I'm very passionate about, though. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> okay. uh, but I think I went through my whole my my own business school for the last decade, starting mm-hmm. I would think 2011, 20. 2012, 2011. Yeah. Uh, so you have, MBA. you have your formal PhD, but you also have your informal MBA then. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. I'm sure that he really appreciated that. So when you got into that, you're doing like things relating to pavement. When did the idea go off in your head that maybe mm-hmm. there was some play here that you could actually do something good in the world of pavement? It's one thing to do right. something because you want to help your father out. It's another thing to think I can actually right. solve a serious social problem like plastic waste. Yeah, it's a very good question. It's it, how the story developed was then I've always wanted to do something related to environment, but uh, I was in grad school and doing this medical implantable devices. So that was somehow unrelated. But okay, let's rewind the story a little bit and see how I got here. I was helping my dad throughout on the side throughout grad school. And then he passed away from cancer. He got cancer in 2015, just a year before I graduated Caltech from Caltech. And then, so I was left with this store, right? And then, so I, ha- I was left with two choices. One is to um, shut down the store. And in that sense, it's, to me, it's like sh- letting the business die, right? <laughs> Together with that. And then the other choice, I get a job. That would be the first option where work at Google or work at some big pharmaceutical company. And second is to continue this and make something great out of this business. I think I took the maybe the irrational to the option and all my friends think I was crazy, but it was pretty clear to me. I wanted I didn't want the business to die. I think if I want to make something, I put my own passion into the business and morph it into something that that's good, that's legacy live on. Mm-hmm. That's in one sense I feel connected to him. The second is I it's like my passion. And then I was luck, also luck strike, and I was pitching around some AI company at that time. I thought I'll change this into this like I made I wrote an AI software that would detect potholes and cracks on the roads, trying to sell to the government. That you will mount it like in this software will be in a like a smartphone camera. The smartphone camera will collect the data, and then the software would would do all the learning. So that would be mounted on the, like garbage truck and et cetera. So that would be selling to the government. And I was pitching it around. So this investor, to, I met this to, investor. Yeah. To who were you pitching this? This is, you're pitching it to investors. You're pitching it to investors. government agencies. Okay, got it. Yeah, at that time, it was just a prototype of the software. So I was pitching to investors and trying to, yeah, basically get that off ground. And then the this investor what turned out to be the investor, right? I'm talking with many, but Tom, he was saying, you're going to be selling to governments. You're going to be a vitamin, which is a nice to have. It's not a painkiller. I'm sure, Paul, you're in business and you're a great <laughs> CEO. You know all about that, right? So selling, it's going to, and also selling to government, selling to G is going to be really long, tough selling cycle. And then why, then we started talking about this the plastics, how all the landfills are filled up. And because that at that time was 2018, that was, it was 2019. So that's the year after China has stopped taking in plastic waste because 
all of our plastics, all of our like municipal waste to be just literally packed into containers and shipped to China. And then they would do the heavy lifting and recycle them. And China in 2018 decided they have enough on their own they to recycle plastic wise so they banned all imports of waste plastics and then that's why the system got a shock in europe and in us all the like the developed worlds so you used to be able to pay you used to have to pay for these waste plastics and now they're giving it for free and nobody would take them they just end up in landfills and so you actually have to pay to dump in landfills and so we tom and i thought it was a it was it's a problem, obviously it's a problem. And also it presents a huge opportunity because if, because chemically it's the same thing, it's a plastic, if, and you know, it, if we can somehow make use of it, downgrade it or something to put it into asphalt in a way, then that will be a big business and it's good for everybody to win. Yeah. So that's so, how so, that, yeah. Bolton. go ahead. So what, oh, that's okay. It's an impressive story show the idea that you could turn trash into treasure, basically. But how do you do it? What is it that actually, you go to a landfill, you take a whole bunch of plastic out of it, and how does that become something that then goes into a highway? It's a very good question. Basically, the problem with landfill not being useful is, as I probably touched a little bit in, in the talk, so now I can expand here a little Mostly because the way we're trying to recycle them, we try to sort everything out and make them into, uh, upcycle them in a sense, to make them into their original shape, PET as PET and LDP as LDP. It's very hard to do with plastic. And it's just thermodynamically uphill, very energy intensive, doesn't, is fighting against nature, fighting against physics. That's very hard to do. And what we're trying to do is, Instead of trying to make them pure again, we make a soup. So we take all this mixed plastic and then we would thermally break them down in the absence of oxygen. So it's also called cracking or pyrolysis. Basically, if we're careful and then control the parameters, we can break down these to have different groups of useful chemicals that would have like important performance that would enhance the performance of asphalt. So basically, mm. so, we take the landfills and then we make a soup of different groups of groups of useful things. So is this being used as a sealant where there is a crack or a pothole, or is this the actual road? Could you pave a fresh road with this? Oh, okay. It's a very good question. This what we're making is at least right now is a additive to asphalt so what it means is we used to have your asphalt and so what we put this in to make the road last longer and actually there are depending on how we crack this this plastic there are different functions we can provide for example we one one product is called the rejuvenator what it does it's a acetylauder for asphalt uh, so it's like a face cream anti-aging face cream for asphalt so <laughs> what one, so one use case is you would pave your roads and then you would spray this rejuvenator, right? This anti-aging cream every year. So as a maintenance, which people do spray similar petrochemicals. And then you spray this to prevent the premature aging of asphalt. So instead of, say, the road would be repaved every 10 years, you can extend this to, say, 2030. So this actually tackling native stress of everything is, is under oxygen, right? That's on the planet Earth. And we're all under oxygen stress. So it's like 
giving the vitamin, giving vitamin E, vitamin C, the antioxidant to the asphalt. So that's the additive we provide. That's one of the Interesting. Additives. So you, so in that case, you're more like a vitamin for the asphalt as opposed to the, the painkiller <laughs> for the asphalt. <laughs> now I think about it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. Oh, that's really cool. So how far along are you? You mentioned you have an investor. Mm -hmm. How much money is, has Molten Materials raised so far? Like how scaled is this process? Uh -huh. Yeah, I unfortunately I cannot disclose the amount, but we the investor had like personally put in three rounds already. And I we are setting up a pilot, um, a pilot production facility in Sacramento, actually. Around Sacramento, in wow, that area. Okay. Cool. Oh, so, I hope to come. Uh, I, I hope to get an invite to come visit. That would be pretty cool. Yes, when we're demo ready for sure, and we're hopefully in the spring because we're setting it up as we speak right now. And uh, hopefully next year we'll have our first product out, and that's when we'll be looking at some like the first serious round. Got it. So y these products are not being commercialized just yet. You're, the company is still pre-revenue. We have our uh, correct in the sense that this product is not being revenue, it's not generating revenue yet. And we do have our bicycle store. <laughs> That's how I hmm. like to think. We are profitable in the sense we have a, we have a slightly longer runway than we support our own R and D with our existing. The store I had helped started with my dad, so the cool. bicycle store to the Wright brothers. That's how I see because they use their revenue from their bicycle store to support the R&D of their flight venture. Eventually, they succeeded. So that's how I would like to tell my employees and team. That's how I see this we're doing now. Okay. Cool. All right. Very cool. So I read on your website, Shelly, said that you could basically use all of the world's plastic and instead of landfilling or incinerating it, turning it into roads. That's a lofty mm -hmm. claim. And yeah. I wonder how many cracks in roads, like how many, how much demand is there for this? The entirety of the world's plastic is of course, billions of pounds of plastic. And you're saying that you could single-handedly take all of that, subject it to your process and just revolutionize how we make roads. That's the claim. Yes, that is the general claim. And it's based on just the pure calculation of how many asphalt roads there are in the world. And actually, how many are, then there's a maintenance and that was a maintenance side and how many new roads are being built each year worldwide. And then I'm not saying I can or I want to single-handedly. I would welcome people and other startups and doing taking plastic other ways. The reason I put that in is I got excited because Number wise, this we have we pave enough roads to be able to take in all these plastic. That's the take okay. home. So, will you be the one selling this, or are you looking to license the technology to others who might be able to scale it up more quickly to then go and do that? What's the business model here? Is it that as can my wife and I, or homeowners, can we have a crack in our driveway? Will I be able to buy a box of molten pavement sealer that I can mm -hmm. utilize in my own home? Yes, hopefully next year. Uh, it's our first, the current business model is we'll be the manufacturer and we'll make it in-house. Then, uh, And then our first market will be actually the DIY market because that will be the best, like the the fastest iteration we can do, the, the, the product feedback cycle we can have and in terms of how we need to improve and all that. And before we go pursue DOTs, for example, and the bigger contractors. So... To, yes to your question, you should be able to <laughs> buy a box of Molten, hopefully next year. And uh, in terms of, uh, 
sorry, the second question is: yeah, will, uh, will there be a play toward? Yeah, will there be a play toward licensing? There's presumably companies that like you're an expert in this technology of how to turn plastic into something that can be a road sealant, but presumably there are companies that have extensive manufacturing assets already in place, and I bet some of them may want to license your technology so that they can do that. So, do you have the patents in place where you will be able to license this to them? And is that of interest to you, or do you want to do it all yourself? Yes, we have the IPs, and then it, anything is possible, right? It's whatever makes sense, and then whatever opportunities comes our way, we're open to that to all opportunities. Cool. Okay. Great. So, when you say you have the IP, you have filed for the patents, or you already have patent protection granted? Oh, it's pending. Okay. Cool. It's exciting what you are building here, Shelley. It could really make a, obviously, a really big difference. How big is the company now? I know that you've raised some cash from an individual investor. I know you're not disclosing exactly how much, but how many folks are working at Molten now? Okay. We have we have about a dozen people. It's a small team. And I try to keep it lean. And on, on top of that, it's individual contractors and stuff. Okay. Cool. And so the goal is that by the end of next year, so by the end of 2023, you're going to have the first products out to market. Yes. Exciting. My fingers crossed. (laughs) I believe in the tech. It's it's just a matter of implementation, right? Yeah. And when things scale up, and we just need to learn as we set it up. Indeed. All right. Very cool. Is there a difference between one type of plastic and another? Do you have, have access to a certain type of plastic and that you can't just use any plastic that comes your way? Yes, it, chemistries in different plastics are very different. And what's good about this technology is if we keep it in within certain temperature range, we have we're very tolerant in the products. We can make a soup, right? And yes, the plastics are important. However, it's we don't have to be as careful as the say the upcycling folks. They have to get ninety seven percent purity. No, we just need to say make sure we have like within twenty, thirty percent range of LTP, for example. And then the general landfill that's that reflects the general landfill. So we're not too picky. <laughs> And why go to the landfill? Like I presume that recycling factories have this have a much easier way to give you plastic that you may want. Is there a reason to go to the landfill where things are commingled versus just going to a recycling factory that may have plastics that they can't recycle? That's a very good question. I think actually a post-industrial that what you're saying, like that we are working with factories. So I cannot disclose the names, but yes, we are factory. So they want it, zero waste, closed loop. They want to say their production is that way. And then it works very well for us as well. So to take directly post-industrial plastics and break them down. So cool. what we do, that's obviously the preferred way. But eventually we really want to be able to attack the landfill problem. That's where most things are. That's where most, where the problem is, where yeah. other people cannot deal with. So yeah. how, how does that happen? If you go to a landfill, it's this massive dump of just intermingled trash. Do you require humans to go through and pick out the pieces of plastic that are in there? Like, How do you actually work with a landfill to recover those pieces of plastic in order to upcycle them? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Right now, if we wouldn't be digging up landfill per se, it'll be like, instead of dumping in landfill, people will come to us. So you know, we'll take them for free. I see. So people, in, you'll be averting waste that would go into the landfill. Exactly. Got it. Interesting. So basically, instead of paying to dump it in the landfill, they'd give it to you for free. 
Cool. Okay. They don't have to pay. We don't have to pay. Yeah. And then in the end, it's a much it's a cheaper product even and performs better for than digging up than the petrol based when it becomes like a valuable thing and we can sell it for cheaper. So it's a win win. That's right. So when you say cheaper yeah. than petrol based, you mean cheaper than what I as a homeowner would go and if I went to Home Depot to purchase a product that was like a pavement sealer, or you'll be selling it for cheaper than what I would pay for that at. That's the idea. We're able to sell for cheaper. It's because we can make it for cheaper. I see. Uh, cool. Basically, what if you just go get a box of maybe a, just to be more accurate, a bottle of rejuvenator or like a jug of it today, you'd be probably paying two to three dollars per uh, per pound. It's actually this stuff is cheaper and more expensive than gasoline. It is a niche market. So anyway, and this rejuvenator is mainly mo- is made mostly from asphalt. I see. And then. So asphalt price, because of the Ukraine war and COVID and all the logistic problems, everything compounded, asphalt price went up like three times over the last year, last two years. Hmm. That's why all, and plus, so that's one, the price of this stuff had really skyrocketed. And then that's why you have to pay a more expensive, more higher price than gasoline to, to get this, to get this, something that presumably will be cheaper to make. And, uh, we will be able to, it will be a perfect opportunity for us because our costs haven't increased. It's zero, still the same in terms of raw costs, raw material wise. Yes. So we have a competitive edge from the core technology. Okay. That's what I'm really excited about. Uh, It it sounds very exciting. If you have a free feedstock in order to feed into your process, that's pretty good. So basically your your energy and your labor costs are going to be the primary cost of goods sold for you. I can't wait, Shelly, to purchase a box of molten for my home. I'll look forward to that. I hope you'll let me know. But in the meantime, you've been running your own business for some time now. Molten is only a couple years old, but obviously, as you mentioned, doing you were doing your own business even prior to that. So in your own education, uh, there is your DIY MBA program or even in your formal <laughs> PhD program, were there any resources, Shelly, that were useful for you in your own journey that you oh. would recommend to others, any books or anything else that you think somebody mm-hmm. would be wise to check out? Yeah, I think there are many great books. It's all the stories of, of how other entrepreneurs really made it big. There was one, for one example, of like this book called Shoe Dog. It's how the Nike like how Nike became Nike. And it's really this, the owner, the entrepreneur himself that made something impossible, keeps pursuing, went to Japan a bunch of times. It's a really fascinating story, Shoe Dog. And another book, I maybe a little seemingly unrelated, but it really changed my life. I want to recommend to any entrepreneur, scientist, or just any person is called, is a, this book about Richard Feynman. It's called, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. So it's about it's it's about it's anecdotal stories of, of fine uh, told about Feynman. And I think he told with his drumming buddy later on of all these stories from when he was in college to later graduate school and then the PhD and as a professor and how he won the Nobel Prize. And okay, so- we'll link to both of those. So for those who aren't familiar with Richard Feynman, he was a uh, physicist who, as you mentioned, is a Nobel Prize winner. And we'll link to both of those. I have not read Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, but I did read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder or the co-founder of Nike. And I loved, mm-hmm. I thought that was such a good book. I loved hearing or rather reading all of the mm-hmm. near-death experiences that the company had prior to making it. And right. you just know of Nike as this major behemoth in the business world, but 
you don't know the backstory until you've read Shoe Dog and see how many times this thing came close to total catastrophe. So I really appreciated that book and we'll certainly link it in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com along with this other book too here. So I'm glad to get that recommendation. It looks great and I can't wait to read it. Let me ask you finally then, Shelly, obviously mm-hmm. you have started now not one, but two companies and you are presumably going to be committed to multi-materials for many years to come as you're growing this business, but you probably have ideas for other types of companies that you hope will exist that could solve some problems out there in the world. So if you weren't doing this, maybe you'd be doing something else. Do you have any recommendations for a listener that maybe they should take up the mantle on and start their own company? Oh, wow. Yeah, indeed. I think, first of all, who they should really just follow their heart, right? I can only speak from my personal experience and what I'm passionate about, but finding your passion, it's I think it's the key difference of when near death, like you mentioned, during those near death experiences, whether you survive or not, it's coming from has to come from your heart. That being said, I I think there are two important things that could change the world. That if I'm, I would if I had extra time or maybe extra money, I would really want to work on. There are two things: energy and computation. So that's everything, all the resources we're fighting about. I think the war and the go and everything, right? It's coming from this scarcity based on of energy. And we're still today digging up carbon from ground and burning up yesterday's leftovers. And when there are so many I'm talking about nuclear, nuclear fusion, nuclear fission. Fission is probably more more realistic. Clean fission. I think safe, clean fission is what I think may be the most realistic pathways to a energy abundant society we can have as, as human beings. And I would really, I would love to be working on that. And so that's one. And also the treatment of the nuclear waste. And that's also important because there's no, it, there is none right now. We're just storing them in tanks. But it is an engineering problem that's solvable, just like any other engineering problem. Another thing I would think is quantum computing. Because everything comes down to energy and information. And quantum computing would just open up. If you think AI, is, it's, we're good now. And this will be kids' play if we have quantum computing. It just opens up all the possibilities of what as human beings can do. I might just solve the energy problem or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, these are the two things. Uh, seemingly a little yeah. crazy, but uh, coming cool. from my heart. <laughs> That's very cool. We did a past episode with Elizabeth Muller from Deep Isolation, which is a startup that's working on nuclear waste disposal. And so it's a really interesting episode. We'll link to it at the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But in short, it's illegal by federal law in the United States for a private corporation to permanently dispose of nuclear waste. And so mm-hmm. all of these nuclear power plants have all this radioactive waste that's just sitting there on site. So we have all these different locations with very insecure radioactive waste just sitting there. And so Elizabeth and her company are pioneering ways to essentially create ways that you can store 
that waste for thousands of years safely, but also mm-hmm. make it retrievable so that they can get around this federal law, which says you can't permanently mm-hmm. store it. And so it basically involves diagonal drilling as opposed to going straight down and making it, mm-hmm. putting it deep beneath some of the rock on the crust of the earth, but making it technically retrievable should you be able to go out and get it. Or if somebody figures out a way that you can actually do something with that radioactive waste to either neutralize it or make money off of it in some other way. So we'll link to that episode, but it's a pretty interesting look at the economics of the nuclear waste problem that we face today. But hopefully with clean fission or maybe even fusion in the future, we won't have that problem at all. Yeah, for sure. I just want to add to your point that these nuclear fission waste, they may not be just waste, just like the plastics, right? And it's because the efficiency of the current or the old technology, the fission technology, the temperature they're running at, I'm not, I'm by no means expert in nuclear fission. It's just some, the little knowledge I have. And it's that these, with new technologies, with new clean and maybe high temperature fission, and these ways maybe just become new fuel. So in that sense, what, what she's doing, making it retrievable, I think it's, it's, what makes it really is valuable, is very valuable. I hope that you have such success with the company that you will not be in the fission world anytime soon. I hope that you're going to be running (laughs) Molten for many years, Shelly, but it sounds if you have an exit from Molten that maybe you have your next company waiting for you there with that idea. So with that said, I want to say thank you. I'm really rooting for your success. I hope that Molten is a massive improvement over what we currently do with all of this waste plastic today. So I'll look forward to getting my own for my own driveway when it comes out and cheering you on from the sidelines. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a great pleasure talking with you. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.